I think Jared's in a meeting with someone. Okay. It's on. Okay. They need books. Or a book. A book. Are they? Do you have books somewhere? I, I know there's some in the office. I'll, I'm going to talk to Dallas along. By the way, we were asking, the books cost $10. Um, Jared um, gets them a discount on Yahoo. So we get a really, really, they don't, students will pay much more than that. I think students will probably pay twice as much, honestly. Um, and so the books cost $10, and I'm asking everybody to contribute $5 for the printing. And I may come back and ask you for more if it piles up, but I think most of it's done. Hmm? Make it out to St. Francis. Uh, yes. Make, make, make it out to me, okay. Robert Alexander, because we're taking care of the cash and we'll give it. Um, um, we, I, we've handed out a, a couple of study guides and some maps and some other things, so we will make some additional copies for those of you who are just joining the class next week. Um, do me a favor. Can we take a minute? I, um, this is going to cut into the talk, but I'm, I gave a talk at Islam last night. It wore me out. So I'm, I'm going to see if we can um, finish on time, even, even if it means skimping on these. And next week I'm planning to come back and pick up the underworld. There's no way we can cover it. Um, but just to take a minute, can, those of you who have been here for a while, for the sake of the newcomers, so that they can get to know you. Would you all just take a second and introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Barbara. This is my daughter, Eleanor. I'm Barbara. I'm Joan Pruitt. I'm Mary Jane Molaski. I'm Tom Kelly. Tom has, Tom's Linda, my wife, generally comes, but she got partner in there. Lynn Conklin. Carol Cavan, Julie Dennis and my daughter Laura's at the. Oh, miss her tonight. Yeah, where is she? At the young adults meeting. Oh, there is a young adults tonight. Is that where Jared is? Yeah. Uh, when's it going to be over? I don't know, but she nope. said she'd join us if it's over before oh. 30. Beverly Wharton, the baker. <laughs> 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 Many thanks. <laughs> Jane Dockler. Marcella Derrick. I'm Priscilla Harris. Priscilla and Ron. Ron. Um, and by the can, um, thank you again, Bev. Um, uh, we, I, I do the meeting twice a week um, because some people have difficulties juggling the schedule, and Beverly has been gracious right from the beginning. There may have been only one or two weeks when she's missed, but practically every week she's always cooked something for us, and we are grateful, genuinely grateful. I was even presumptuous enough to ask her once, because I liked her cookies so much, <laughs> she would bake them again. And I did. She did. She did. She did. She did. Um, for those of you who are new um, and um, who are um, here by mistake, um, <laughs> the, the Divine Comedy is starting in a couple of weeks. Um, um, we started the course 
by being Ilya in the Odyssey, and then we just moved on to, to start the Homeria um, a couple of weeks ago. And last week was the first, the, the week before I did an overview of the Homeric world. And last week we started looking at the Aeneid. So this is the second week on the Aeneid. We're doing three books a week. We, sh we will finish it in two more weeks. We'll do the next three books yeah. next week and oh, the last three books, the last three books um, the following week. And then after that, we will start the Divine Comedy. There she is already. Did you, oh, you got it. Where'd you get it, Don? It was on Jared's Can you turn it on? When you said prayer, did you say prayer? No. Um, <coughs> Can you introduce, we just did the introduction because there's several new people here today, so. Hi, I'm Laura. Laura. Is there anything else I need to tell us? No, but you're in a youth group? I, I didn't know that. What's going on? Um, they're trying to start a young adults group, so from like 18 to 39. Young adults, 39? That was my thought too, but I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> that, is what is young, that is what young adult is defined by yeah. the USCCB. Oh gosh. <laughs> I'm not going to ask what that makes me. Well, I guess that makes us younger. Then. Right. Only the only person on the age. Ordinarily, we begin with a prayer. And because this, this, I don't like calling it class, this, um, this uh, meeting we have. Um, is, is focused on ethics and narratives. And I've been making the point from the beginning that there's a quality of poetry that's really important for us to know. And, and all of these works that we're reading are in translation, so we're missing something of it. But I've been making lots of claims for poetry, <laughs> that it's prophetic, um, the poets can show us things that nobody else can. Um, that they see things that the scientists, the sociologists, and the psychologists can't grasp, can't see. It's a it's a more intuitive mode of knowing. It's not a conceptual. It's a preconceptual mode of knowing. Preconceptual. Where we get most of our lives are conceptual modes of knowing in the sciences. By, by by nature, they are abstractions. So much of what we get is in, is in the form of abstractions, and I think there's a danger for us in that. I've been preaching that from the beginning. What poets do is take us back to our world, our concrete world, but they also take us to realms of that world that are beyond the range of conceptual reason. They take us into an un, what we would call the unconscious today. It's certainly going to be true with Virgil, and um, that's going to be a, um, a focus of our work tonight. But there are these prophetic elements to poetry, and they line up with the prophetic tradition um, that we get in the Old Testament and New Testament. I, I gave a timeline showing that. Those of you who knew, I, I'll, 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 we'll print off some stuff and I'll have it so that you can look at it next week. But in any case, that's what we're doing. But to support that, to reinforce it, I, I start each meeting reading a couple of lyric poems, because lyric poems are more conspicuously poetic. And they're in English. They're in our language. So we can we can hear the poetic the inherent poetic qualities were clearly more obviously than we can in a translation. And um, the poems that I've chosen, the lyric poems that I've chosen for the readings are all in support of 
the purpose of this class. They're intended to show that poets um, see things, show things about ourselves that there's nothing we don't see. Um, and they also reveal Christ in lots of ways. They show he's present and at work in nature. Um, and um, I've been making the argument that it's really important for us to take language more seriously than we do because it's by means of language, words, that we can penetrate the conscious world, see it materially, and the unconscious, those obscure depths to our soul that are so hard for us to see and do. Somebody, a French philosopher once said, man is obscure, and is obscure to himself. We don't see ourselves very well. The poets help us, and the argument that I've been making is they do it in a prophetic way. And so much of what they, that's not always true. Lots of poets are bad poets. None of the poets that we're reading are bad poets. Um, the, the whole point of this is, um, is to experience a poetry that, that supports our faith, to, so that we can see that God is at work in the natural order, that, that reason um, is at work in support of our faith, and, and so that in some sense we can grow in our faith by opening ourselves to what the natural world has to offer us. Christ is always there, he's at work. Uh, what the poem that I'm going to read tonight is, I'm, I'm going to read The Windover. We've already done it, but I'm going to go back while we're doing Virgin, and I'm going to reread some of the poems we've already done, because I really believe that the, the first time you heard it, it probably didn't make sense, but more and more, if we go back and reread it again, you're going to hear things, and it will make more sense now than it would have the first time. So I'm going to go back and reread some of the poems as we move along. <coughs> That's what we've been doing. So um, we start with a lyric, and then we move into the epics. Right now, we've just started Virgil's Aeneid, and in three more weeks, we will start Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, and um, I'm not sure if, if you all know, but Pope Francis has asked the whole church to, um, to read the Divine Comedy. I wrote a letter to my children today and said, he must have been listening to me. <laughs> I blushed when I wrote that because it sounded so arrogant, but they know that I didn't read it that way. Um, anyway, the, t the timing is perfect. I mean, really, a, a church is asking us to read it. Here, we just happen to happen. We just happen to be online to read it. So, um, I hope I hope even more join us as we do that. But we'll see. Sorry, Brad, did you have something? I just started saying that the Bolton got got the message. Yeah, yeah, it was a nice it was a nice plug. Um, I feel like I'm leaving something out, but I, I oh. Um, some of you were at the talk last night. Uh, um, Jared and I gave a talk on the um, fundamental differences between Islam and Catholicism, and it was really the in response to a guest speaker who came here a couple of months ago to give a talk, and I was troubled by it, and so was Jared. So last night we gave a talk. Some people have expressed their gratitude. Um, I. I I mean, you keep coming back, so I hope it's there. No. <laughs> um, um, I think it would be good for those of you who are glad for these things, this is part of the adult education program that the church is offering, to say something to Father. I mean, if these are things that are helpful, 
or or um, you have something good to say, or even bad. I mean, it would be good to take those things to him because I think very often they're in the dark. They don't hear from people. They don't know how things are going. I'm assuming you're okay with it, or you wouldn't keep coming back. But I'm not sure that they know. You know what you think about it. Um, so. If you have responses to the Islam talk or the class, let Jared know or let Father know so that um, if there is something good about these things, the church can you know, continue to work with this. Um, I'm amazed that you're here, truly amazed and honored, humbled. And I mean, I wouldn't say that. There are times when I'm genuinely humbled that you, students have to go. You know, they want a career. I don't want to get started now. They, you know, but you guys are here because you want to learn, which to me should be behind almost everything we do. We shouldn't stop learning. We, God made us to learn. We're meant to grow. Um, we shouldn't stop until we're gone. So the fact that you guys are here is sort of amazing. I'm really just always glad to see you coming back. So, okay, let's start. <coughs> Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let your spirit be upon us this night. Um, everybody here um, comes at some cost to break into their evenings when they could be at home, um, comfortable on a couch. Um, we're here together to learn, strengthen all of us so that whatever we see, whatever we take away from these things, we can live, put them in action, change our lives, help us to become better, um, to make you more present. Um, in all things, help us to be one with you so that we can bring you to all that we do, offer you to each other, um, give you to each other the way you do to us. Um, thank you for your presence in our lives. Amen. Okay. Um, <coughs> So everybody got the handout. There's one handout that's stapled. It's the underworld, the, the, the underworld of the dying cities. Yeah, you all have them? Does everybody have the handouts tonight? Okay. Um, the poems. Do you have a poem, Doc? I don't have the Here at the Psalms and the Wind Cover. I don't have the Wind Thanks, ma'am. I'm going to start with the wind cover since we've already done it. Um, so this is looking back, but re remember, this is Hopkins, um, a Catholic priest converted from the Protestant world. He was involved in that Tractarian movement in the 19th century. It was so important in England. He's reliving, reenacting, describing that moment when he looked into the sky and saw this bird, this wind hover, hover. And for a moment, when the bird hovers, it's as if he masters the wind. You know, his wings spread, and as if he can hold himself. For a moment, there's a mastery. He's not buffeted, he's not thrown to earth. He, it's almost like he masters it. And he describes that moment in terms of buckling. And buckling has two meanings. It means you can pull everything together to buckle, like your belt. But it also means to break. And in that moment, what he sees is an image, I believe, of Christ in the crucifixion. That in, in that moment when he offers his life completely, he masters life, death, 
That's, that's what gets handed over to us in our faith. That's in the octave, the first eight line. In the sestet, he describes the moment. That, that is, in the octave, the first eight lines, he describes the experience. It's called an Italian sonnet. Octave and the sestet, eight line, six line. In the octave, typically you describe an experience, and in the sestet, you reflect on it, you look back on it to see what it means. So in that sestet, we get a reflection on it. He says, all of these things buckled, and then he says in the, in the tercet, the last three lines, there's no wonder in this. It's nothing unusual. It's ordinary. You see it when a, when a farmer plows his earth. When the dirt gets turned over and it becomes so fine that it radiates a light, that it shines. And a fire, when it goes out, blue bleak embers, Amadir, fog all gash themselves. When the, you know, the, when a, in that moment, that's a moment expressive of crucifixion. A light coming into the world and dying out. So everywhere in nature, he's finding Christ. How could it not be? He was the means of creation. He's everywhere present in it. Um, ordinarily, I don't take time on them. I, I just say a few words because I don't want to take time on these. Ordinarily, I just take a minute to say a few words and go on because our, our business is not with lyrics. It's with these epics where I've been making the case that they're, they're intimations of Christ. Um, but here, morning's minion is the darling, the darling of the morning. Daylight's dauphin, the dauphin is the prince heir in the French throne. He, he's the prince, he will inherit the kingdom. Dappled dawn, drawn falcon, is, um, he's the dauphin. Dapp he's drawn to the dawn, and the dawn is dappled. You can imagine the multicolor, the apple color of a beautiful dawn. Um, and I'll leave it there. Gerard Manley, Gerard Manley Hopkins, the window to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylights, dauphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind, my heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of a thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, O oh, air, pride, plume, here buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow down sillion shine, and blue bleak embers, ah my dear, fall golden cells, and gash gold vermilion. This is one of the poems that sort of awakened me, truly knocked me over when I saw what Hopkins was doing. Almost changed my life. You, oh, you want to back something back? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, Bob, I do. That was, that was too subtle for my, for my, for my dull mind. Okay, I'm just going to read a couple of psalms. Um, and they actually speak to our, oh, I mean, our epics. If the, whore, if the Lord doesn't, do, I mean, you, you were here for the Iliad, some of you, but you, you remember in the Iliad that Laomedon had made, betrayed the gods when they made this arrangement of the gods to build Troy. 
So there was this curse on Troy because they had already not broken their promise with the gods. So the founding went against the gods. And what we see is the end result. The city gets sacked as destroyed. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor. Psalm 137, by the what? They're in captivity. They're weeping for home. Think about Odysseus, weeping for home. Calypso's island, wanting to be there. Doing everything he can to get home. Aeneas, struggling to, to go back to what he hears was the origins, the beginnings of his own quest. And Psalm 23, you all know. Um, poem, Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. His arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us a song. Remember, we've begun the Iliad, I mean the Aeneid. He's lost his home. He's in exile. He's a fugitive. Um, he's lost everything. Um, when he looks at the, uh, the panels on Juno's temple, remember, he weeps to look back and see a story of everything that he lost. For there our captors required us of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the root of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Raise it, raise it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little one and dashes them against the rock. It's one of the more vindictive notes in the Old Testament. It's, um, it's, um, I mean, it's one, in some ways, one with the spirit of so much that goes on in the vengeance that we're reading about in the Iliad and the Aeneid. <coughs> Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
I, I don't think ordinarily people think of the Psalms as lyrics, but that's what they are. Yes. That's what they are. They're the beginning of the lyric tradition. That, that, and in, in one sense, they make my case. The beginnings of the lyric is this communion between the poet and God. And God's teaching him how to speak, how to sing. And we're seeing that quality, quality carried forward in so many of the lyrics that we've been reading. That's exactly what gets carried forward, even if it's not um, framed in terms of the Old Testament or prophecy. But we've been seeing um, how much they belong in that tradition. So. <coughs> Sorry. Okay, just very, very briefly. Um, we talked about literature as prophecy, and I'm not going to go uh, over this. We've already reviewed it last week. Um, we've talked about it again and again. One of the qualities that I added last week was this quality of what I called forgiveness. Um, that one of the things that enters the tradition through Virgil is um, this clear sense that the past is being carried forward and transformed renewed, changed, so that all of the things that were done are, are being carried forward but redeemed. So it's almost like a spirit of forgiveness that the past is being changed. And I, I offered the thought last week that most of us think of the past as fixed. It's done and over with, and we can't change it. That's not what Virgil's showing us. What he's showing us is that it can be changed. And, and in fact, it's going to become very, very clear when we look at the dying cities. Because when he gets to Buthrodum, what he's going to find in Buthrodum with Hellenus and Andromache is that they're trying to duplicate the past. They're trying to live it. When I've taught this class, I, I say it to the students. Think about the danger you face when you try to just duplicate your, what your parents have done. We can't do it. We're, we're meant to carry them forward. But if we don't change what they've given us, somehow we're not doing our work. The past is not fixed. It's meant to be recreated. What began, you know, according to our Catholic faith, what began in creation was carried forward in Christ and continues now. That's at the heart of St. Augustine's um, confessions in the last couple of books, that the work of creation is ongoing. So God is always, there's no past and future for God. Yeah, it's internal now. So, He's always doing something with the past. Are we? Virgil is. And this is, a, this is a pagan. So one of the things I introduced last week was, here's another prophetic quality that's strange to us. It's, it's not showing us what we don't want to look or see or um, revealing Christ explicitly. It shows, it shows us, I mean indirectly you can say that's Christ. There's this ongoing work of carrying the past forward and changing it as we go. That's our work. It relates to this theme of translation that he has to take that whole Greek world and carry it forward and do something with it. And we've seen what he's doing. He, there was a, we talked about it last week. There's this serious, very serious critique of the Greek world. Um, and and <laughs> I always find myself in a strange place when I do the Aeneid because I, I, I try to think, Thomas says you have to show, you have to see things as they are if we care about truth. We have to see what is and conform our mind to it. That's what truth is. The conformity of the mind with things. To see things as they are. What is. Not what we want to make it. What is. 
So when I present the Iliad and the Odyssey, I had nothing. I mean, I, those of you who've been with me, you know, I love those poems. I love Achilles. Lots of people think I'm nuts. They, they think he's a yes. blaggard. <laughs> um, I think he's an extraordinary man. I, I think he's the prefiguration of Christ in some way. And I feel the same way about Achilles. There was a, there was a teacher at, at UD, one of my colleagues, who hated his disease. He thought he was the Antichrist. <coughs> I think he's absolutely wrong. Um, we have to see things as they are. So I presented these men as these embodiments of virtue and dignity and integrity. And now we get to Virgil, and you see Virgil just smashing them. They're, they're both despicable men. So at the beginning of our reading on the Aeneid, we have to make this real psychic adjustment because we're entering a new world. Virgil's taking that past and changing it in radical ways. Um, um, we saw Aeneas setting out, embarrassed, humiliated, at the thought that he might die in the sea, remember? And I reminded everybody that that's, that's an expression of the kleos, that old sense of honor. That he, Virgil knows exactly what he's doing. Those were the same words of Aeneas, or Achilles, they were the same words of Odysseus. He's still a part of that old world. He belongs to that old honor code. It's been his life, how can it not be? But we began to see how he's coming out of it. He sees the story of the Trojan War on Juno's temple when he comes to Carthage. And he weeps. And when he comes to this point, remember, here's the, uh, here's, the, um, here's the Iliad. The Iliad took 10 years to complete. The Odyssey took 10 years to complete. When, when Virgil writes the Aeneid, he picks up the story in the seventh year. Remember, the voyages have all taken place. He has just buried his dad. He's been seven years wandering. He gets blown off course, and he ends up at Carthage. And he tells a story. Yeah? So for seven years, um, he's been struggling. When he looks, and, and there, there has not been an experience that he's almost, there's not been an experience that he's had that hasn't been negative. Again and again and again and again, he's been wrong. He keeps trying to do what the gods want him to do, and he sees that he's got it wrong. He's failed. Every effort to found a city has led to a defeat, a failure. So he's had seven years of failure when we meet him. And he looks at the, at the story of the Trojan War at this hero called Aeneas, and we talked about it. it, it how, does he see him? I mean, he, we, it's not a modern work. He doesn't go into the psychology of Aeneas's head. But I think Virgil is meant for us to feel that in some sense he doesn't know who he is. Um, he's not the same man he was before. He's lost everything. He's lost his homeland. He's been seven years experiencing defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. He's more like Hamlet. He's more like a modern. Who am I? Who's that man? You know, this, all he can experience is weeping at all the losses uh, that, have, that have defined his life. And he still isn't sure where he's going. So this is a very, very different hero from the Homeric, Homeric heroes that we've been reading. <coughs> we saw Virgil's critique of Troy, um, or, or sorry, of the Greek world. Um, he shows us multiple images of Achilles and Odysseus. Achilles, he describes both of them as men who are greedy. So one of his 
um, one of his critiques of the Greek world is that it's motivated by booty. When he says goodbye, when Aeneas goes back into the city to get Creusa, we're going to read it tonight, Odysseus is described as guarding the plunder. Those are not accidents. Over and over and over again, he's showing us that the Greek, mo the Greek motives for taking Troy was not honor. I feel like I'm undoing, I feel like I'm undermining the Iliad and the Odyssey. Wasn't honor, it was greed. Gold, that's what they wanted all along. So he's uncovering all of this and showing that what motivated the Greek world was um, greed. When I left the Iliad with you guys, you heard me <coughs> speak nothing but praise of these men. I mean, I, and I still go back to the Iliad, that's the way I'd still read it. Achilles is a great man. Odysseus is a great man. Um, in the opening pages, the books of the Aeneid, what we see is these men did not defeat Troy. They did not overcome their enemies through greater integrity or strength or honor, the new honor that I said entered the world in the Greek world. They defeated by treachery. And worse than that, they, they showed how sinister, evil they were by using the gods in lies to trick the Trojans. They did it by guile. Odysseus is a man of guile, cunning. So that whole heroic Greek world is smashed, absolutely um, um, undercut. Um, and I, I read you that passage of Diphobus in Hell, when Adias comes in the underworld, sorry, underworld. When he meets Diphobus, and Diphobus describes that moment when, when the city collapsed and, and Helen let the Greeks in when he was sleeping. And the description of Diphobus is his face is mutilated. His, his, heart, his nose is carved out, his eyes, he's just mutilated. Helen betrayed him. He was sleeping and the Greeks came in. So again and again and again, we get, we, we, if there was anything romantic or idealizing about our reading of the Greek world, Virgil smashes it. Um, Achilles, Odysseus, Ulysses, Helen are all despicable, despicable figures. Um, and then I touched on the, um, the um, dying cities. The other side of this critique of the Greek world was implicitly a critique of the Rome world. When Virgil, I'm, I'm going to give you the citation. I, I don't want you to turn to it because I, I'm, I'm so aware that we don't have much time tonight. In book six, um, line 102 and following, it's page 161 and two. Don't go there. Um, Aeneas says this to the Sibyl, and all you gods and goddesses as well who took offense at Ilium and our pride, at last and rightly you may spare Peregrine's children. I ask no kingdom other than fate allows me. Let our people make their settlement in Latium. He acknowledges that the greatest fault of the Trojans was their arrogance, their hubris. And we saw that repeatedly in the Iliad. Um, um, they are very religious people, but they take the gods for granted. They're, we saw in the Iliad that they were enablers. Prime enabled his children all the time. They, didn't, they, 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 they made their family more important than God. And it just led to weaknesses everywhere. People doing things for the wrong reasons. 
So um, what we see in Troy is a, is a failed inheritance. There was something wrong with the founding. It eventually gets destroyed. The, the, it was founded on some illusions, some relationship that they thought they had with the gods, but they discovered that it wasn't. Remember, in the Iliad, over and over and over again, we saw men praying to the gods repeatedly. And repeatedly we saw Homer saying, but the gods didn't hear, didn't do. Um, because what we see is that so often what men pray for um, is out of selfish motives for the wrong things. Remember, <laughs> this, is, this goes so, in the, flies right in the face of Virgil. Who are the goddesses who look after, who's the gods who look after Achilles and Odysseus? Athena. In Homer's world, you can't, she's the goddess of wisdom and strength and virtue. And so in the Homeric world, um, there's, there's clearly, that, that was my argument, that what we see in Achilles is this new sense of honor and integrity to the human soul, that he's more in tune with the divine. Such honor is the thing I need not. I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He turns away from possessions. That's the whole movement. And the whole reversal at the end of the Iliad is, um, shows that a new action, something new has entered this world that, that involves the transcendent. So that the greedy that motivates, the greed that motivates all these other men is not what motivates Achilles. Um, um, but there was something wrong with Troy. Um, the, the people who founded it um, were lacking in virtue. There was something wrong. And so what we witness is the destruction of Troy. And um, it sets Aeneas on his quest to found Rome. And the question that I keep asking is, um, what is that the book pushes us to ask, what is Rome? What is Rome? And what we learn at the very beginning is, whatever it is, we don't know yet what it is, whatever it is, the cost of it is giving up everything. It costs nothing less than everything. Aeneas has to lose everything, except his gods. Um, he takes his son, that's the future. He loses his wife, his, his father, his past, his land, his home. So, and it's interesting to me how that lines up with Isaiah and Christ. If you're going to follow me, give up everything. So somehow, to enter Rome, and, and, and my argument is, this is the Rome that is the center of our faith. What we see from this pagan is um, that there's this new creation entering the world, this new kind of city. Um, the Greeks were racial. They went back home to themselves. What Aeneas is going towards is a city that will include everybody. That will be one of the things so in so many ways, we're moving out of this old world to find everybody into something new. And the cost of it will be nothing less than everything. So that's just a quick um, review. Um, I want to go back and read some lines because we didn't read them um, before and touch on some, I want to look at a couple of passages in Dido and, and then if we have time, I want to look at the dying cities and, and go over them. If not, I want to touch on them, even, even if it's only for a few minutes tonight. We'll go back and look at them more closely. You guys go ahead and you're reading. Um, 
the book four and book six are tremendously heavy, and there's so much going on. We, we're, we've only got four weeks to do this, so there's only so much we can do together. Um, so I'll suggest some things to you. And the, the handouts are meant to help you for those of you who want to look into it more closely. Um, I want to go back and look at some of the things that happened in the, um, in the in Aeneas's description of the fall of Troy. Go back to 48, just quickly. I'm just going to touch on these. <coughs> on page 48, middle of the page, the Greeks have entered, secretly entered through the Trojan horse, and um, they're destroying people, killing people right and left. Aeneas and some of his companions for a moment put on Greek armor and Greek disguises to protect themselves. And in, shortly after, they're discovered. And um, Virgil writes the scene. It's not important in this context. I could ignore it because there's more, more, so many more things that are so much more important. But I'm reading it because there's something that does with it in the Divine Comedy that's extraordinary. And those of you who are going to go on to the Commedia, if you didn't know the Aeneid, you would miss it. I've been, I've been saying that, that. Remember that Virgil, the, the poets have been teaching us to read differently. And with Virgil, we, we learned that we can't really understand the Aeneid if we haven't read the Iliad and the Odyssey because they're both embedded completely. If, if you haven't read it, there are going to be dimensions of meaning you missed. This is a particular person that Dante uses, this guy named Riffius. Just look at the page, and, and I'm going to pass it. And, but when we get to the Divine Comedy, those of you who are still with us, I'm going, to, I'm going to test you guys and see which one of you guys remember who Riffius was. So 48? 48, middle of the page. They overwhelmed us. Coribus fell at the warrior goddess's altar, killed by Penelope's. And Riffius fell, a man uniquely just among the Trojans, the soul of equity, but the gods would have it differently. Now just remember that we read that. I just because it's, Remember, what we're learning with Virgil is everything that Virgil writes contains Homer in it. And if we haven't read Homer, we're going to miss it. When we get to Dante, when Dante miss, when he mentions Riffius, he's going to do something extraordinary with Riffius. If you haven't read Virgil, you won't even see it. Okay, so I just wanted to point that out. On page 50 to 52, Aeneas goes to the top of the roof where he has a vision of the whole city under flames. He's watching his city from the roof burn. And he describes Pyrrhus at the top of page 50, who is Achilles' son, a vicious, vicious boy, a warrior. He says, Pyrrhus, shouldering forward with an axe, broke down the stony threshold. So he, he, he comes into Priam's court. This is the king of Troy. Remember, this is the man that Achilles had that tender moment with at the end of the Iliad, where they both weep together, um, this old king. Um, one of Priam's sons runs into the courtyard, and um, Pyrrhus kills him in front of his father. At the bottom of the page 50, I myself saw Neoptolemus furious with blood in the interest way. You remember how Tate's Aeneas at Washington began? I saw Neoptolemus. It was the opening lines of Tate's poem, for those of you who were here and read it. 
It was one of the lyrics that we read a couple of weeks ago, you guys were new. Um, Prime before the altars with his blood drenching the fires that he himself had blessed, top of 51. Those 50 bridal chambers, hope of a line so flourishing, still this hope of a family line. Prime at his hundred sons and daughters. Those doorways high and proud adorned with takings of barbaric gold were all brought low. Fire had them, or the Greeks. What was the fate of Prime, you may ask? Now he describes it. The old man puts it on his armor. Hecuba asks him what he's doing. Down a few lines. In the middle of it stands this um, laurel tree by an altar of great age leaning over in a deep shade, embowered the Panades. At this altar, Hecuba and her daughters, like white doves, blown down in a black storm, clung together, enfolding holy images in their arms. Now seeing Priam in a young man's gear, she called out. She says to her husband, what are you doing? The gods will protect us. Take it off. So down, she drew him close, heavy with years, and made a place for him to rest on the consecrated stone. Listen to the language. There's nothing like this in Homer. Nothing like this in Homer. Now see, Pelides, one of Priam's sons, escaped. This is the one that um, Pyrus butchers. Go on over 52, and, um, a third of the way down. At the destruction of my son, you forced me to look on, defile the father's eyes with death. The great Achilles, you claim to be the son of, and you lie, was not like you to Priam, his enemy. To me, who threw myself upon his mercy, he showed compunction. Go down. Um, Pyrus has nothing but scorn, and he says to the old man, now die. Go down a few lines with this. To the altar step itself, he dragged him trembling, slipping into the pool blood, slipping in the pool blood of his son, and took him by the hair with his left hand. The sword flashed in his right, up to the hilt he thrust it in his body. That was the end of Priam's age, the doom that took him off. With Troy in flames before his eyes, his towers headlong fallen. He that in other days had ruled in pride so many lands and peoples, the power of Asia. Now he's dead. Troy's virtually gone from that moment. Venus comes to um, Aeneas on page 54, and she says, why are you not taking care of your family? It's a reproach. Do we ever hear anything like that? In, in the, Achilles has no family. You never hear Athena saying, why aren't you taking care of your dad? Or I mean, they're not around. And Nice is here with his family, and she says, why aren't you taking care of your family? Imagine the approach to a great hero like Aeneas. Middle of the page, son, why let such suffering goad you onto fury past control? Where's your thoughtfulness for me, for us? Um, go down towards the bottom. Look over there, I'll tear away the cloud that, cur that curtains you and films your mortal sight. The fog around you. Have no fear of doing your mother's will, or balk at obeying her. Look, where you see high masonry thrown down, stone torn from stone, with billowing smoke and dust. Neptune is shaking from their beds the walls that his great trident pried up, undermined, toppling the whole city down. And look, Juno in all her savagery holds the scan gates, and raging in steel armor calls her allied army from the ships up on the citadel. Turn, look, Pallas Tritonia, Athena, couched in a storm cloud, lightning, with her Gorgon. The father himself empowers the Danans, urges us all. 
So the vision that he has is the, of the gods destroying the city. It's as if we could almost take away a scientific worldview for a minute that would just look at nature in terms of decay, you know, things decaying. What Virgil is showing us is that nothing goes on without the gods, that she removes the veil and we can see that the gods are just slowly destroying the city. He goes home um, to get his family and he's so overwhelmed for a moment with um, fear that for a moment he despairs and he's going to buckle on his armor and go back out into the battle, into the battle at the top of 57. I buckled on sword belt, but at the door Creusa hugged my knees and held up little Elus to his father. If you're going out to die, take us to face the whole thing with you. The experience leads you to put some hope in weaponry, such as you now take guard your own house here. When have you gone? To whom is Elias left? Your father, wife, one called that long ago? Have we ever heard a sentiment like, I who was once your wife? She's still his wife, right? She's saying, you've abandoned me. Such a strong reproach. Um, and nothing, nothing close to that in the Iliad of the Odyssey. Nothing close. Shamed, he stays, and in that moment, Anchises, his father, takes what we call the taking of the auspices. He looks for an omen from the gods. They give it light, surrounds his head, he loses his head, and, and he sees that that's a sign from the gods that it's okay to leave. So um, Aeneas puts his son on his shoulders, or sorry, the father on his shoulders, <coughs> on his back. He holds his son with his hand, and with Creusa beside him, they flee. They go out of the sea. Take a look at this line on the bottom 58. This is a man who has had no fear. It, remember the Iliad. He stood up against Achilles. He's going to go to battle with him when Apollo saved him. This is the man who is fearless. He, he will, he's ready to go back into battle. He's, for a moment, he's overcome with despair until his, wife, um, till his wife's reproach. Um, he's got his family all around him, and this is the way Virgil describes it, bottom of 58. Through the shadowed places on we went, and I, lately unmoved by spears thrown, any squads of grief, felt terror now at every eddy of wind, alarm at every sound. The merest whisper of a breath terrifies him now, this man who's always fearless. Why? Because he's got his family on him. Completely new sentiment in Western civilization. You know, would Achilles have had this thought? I mean, we never get it. Odysseus, even though he's going home, we never get close to something like this. He's ready to go to battle and do anything he wants, but now that he's got his family and he's fleeing, the, the merest hint of a wind in the leaves terrifies him, as if there's an enemy there because he knows his family could be killed. He goes out of the city, and when he gets out of the city at the departure point where they're going to leave, they're going to disembark to take their flight, he looks around and Creus is gone. His wife's not with him. So, um, in terror, he turns around and flees, goes back into the city to meet his enemy. He's going to be surrounded by Greeks everywhere, top of 60. I pressed on to see Prime's Hall and Tower and the bare colonnades of Juno's Shrine, two chosen guards, Phoenix and hard Odysseus, kept watch over the plunder. 
Virgil knows exactly what he's doing. Um, piled up here were treasures of old Troy from every That was one of the faults of Troy. Remember, it was too rich. We saw that in the Iliad. It, it acquired, remember, Hector um, wanted everybody's booty and armor, and, and he wanted Achilles' horse and armor, or Patroclus Achilles. And, and he got scolded by Sarpedon and the others, Glaucon, and he said, what are you doing, leaving these men to die while you're going off for armor? Um, he, he calls out in the night, even though it puts him at risk. I even dared to call out in the night. I filled the streets with calling in my grief. Time after time, I groaned and called Creusa, frantic, an endless quest from door to door. Then to my vision, her sad wraith appeared, Creusa's ghost, larger than life, before me. Chilled to the marrow, I could feel the hair on my head rise, the voice clot in my throat, but she spoke out to ease me of my fear. <laughs> this is, what's to be gained by giving way to grief so madly, my sweet husband? Nothing here has come to pass except as heaven willed. You may not take Creusa with you now. It was not so ordained, nor does the Lord of High Olympus give you leave. For you long exile waits, and long sea miles to plow. You shall make landfall on Hesperia, where Lydian Tiber flows. It's another hint of his destiny, where he's to go. Um, where Lydian Tiber flows with gentle pace, between rich farms lands. <coughs> And the years will bear glad peace, a kingdom, and a queen for you. This is a woman giving up her husband and knowing he's going to get another woman. What's her response? Jealousy, anger, resentment. The gods will it. She's given them up. Um, glad peace and a kingdom and a queen for you. Dismiss these tears for your beloved Creusa. I shall not see proud homelands of Myrmidons or of Dolophians or go to serve Greek ladies. She won't be enslaved, captured. Um, Dardanian lady that I am, and daughter-in-law of Venus the Divine, know the great mother of the gods detains me here on these shores. This is one of the old things. I mean, St. Augustine wept at these, by the way. I don't know if you all know that. St. Augustine wept when he read the Aeneid. He loved this book, St. Augustine. He loved he clearly saw Christ, intimations of Christ. He loved these scenes. He wept when he read this, and he wept when he read the Dido, although the difference between the two is remarkable. Compare this scene with Dido when Aeneas has to leave, and you'll see the difference between one kind of woman and another. Dardani lady that I am, and daughter-in-law of Venus the Divine, know the great mother of the gods detains me here on these shores. Farewell now. Cherish still your son and mine. With this she left me weeping wishing that I could say so many things, and faded on the tenuous air. So, if we start putting these things together, what is Rome? Giving up everything. And it, it's impossible to miss the, the spirit of self-sacrifice and Creusa. Go and kiss my son. You know, why are you weeping? The gods have will. I'm to stay here. She gives him up and... So over and over and over again, we, we keep experiencing these losses, how personal they are and how deep for Aeneas. Um, let me stop for a second, because we've got to look at, I want to just quickly go over um, the, the dying cities. 
Um, and then I want to look at just a couple of scenes with Dido. But any questions? Say your name again. Uh, Greg. Greg. Yeah. Uh, Helen Troy. Helen Troy. Who's Helen Troy? She was Menelaus's wife. But Paris, the Trojan, came and took her. And when we see her, she's pretty content with, even though, I mean, she doesn't do an awful lot to get away, even though she scorns Paris. Remember in book three of the Iliad when he comes, when he gets whisked out of the battle and they go back and they make love while all the Trojans are fighting. Paris and Helen are making love in bed. And, um, um, okay. <laughs> I, I'm going to just look at, um, I want to briefly touch on some things and then just look at two very, um, two scenes in, uh, in book four on Dido uh, and then call it a night. Um, we may come back, I, I know I'll come back to the cities for a few minutes next time, but before we go on, I'd like you all to, I gave you a handout um, that's stapled. I gave you a handout that's stapled called The Underworld. It's an outline of book six. Um, I'm only, next week I'm only going to touch on a couple of things. I, I want to look at the moment when Aeneas uh, meets his father, Anchises in the underworld, because it's there that he gets clear on his mission, his calling, what, exactly what it is for the first time. But I, there's just two, in book four and book six are two of the most, two of the richest books in all of literature. Um, I mean, they deserve an evening each, and there's no way we can do that in a group like this. So what I've done is I've, I've outlined book six here, and, and then I've added some notes at the end for those of you who want to look at them. Actually, Tom, I had you on my mind particularly. If you look at the end of it on page nine, you'll see me addressing what I think is something remarkable in Virgil. When Aeneas comes to Italy, and he goes to Sybil's cave, Apollo's cave, to pray to the gods, he can only get into the underworld with the Sybil's help. They have to find a golden bough that, um, that is the key to getting into the underworld. And the golden bough is twinned, twin limb. It's natural and artificial. And it marks one of the fundamental differences between the Homeric and Virgilian world. If you remember all the metaphors in Homer's world, they were all located in nature. All of them were in nature. That's the frame of reference for everything. Virgil's in a, wor in a world in which art and artifice, what men can do with words, is so important that he, he credits it in the golden bough. It's got a natural leaf and a golden leaf, an, an artifice, a thing made. Because he's aware, of the I think, far more self-conscious of poetry and the power of poetry than Homer. Aeneas can't enter the underworld without that. So they find it and he enters it. But on the, on the walls of the underworld are the story of Daedalus. 
and I don't have time to go into it now, but I think what Homer's, or what Virgil's doing with it is extraordinary. Because I think what he's doing is showing two things. One is that the danger that Aeneas will face in Italy. And two, the danger that Virgil faces as a poet. So that in some ways, he and Aeneas stand as one. And an, an interesting thing comes to light in that story on the panel, and that is the danger. Aeneas is going to learn before this not to go to Circe's island. He's going to bypass Circe. Over and over and over again, what we see in Virgil's treatment is the sexual act is so dangerous. What, what caused the Trojan War, the destruction of this city? The sexual act was a, an adultery. He took Helen and violated a marriage. Who's the goddess of marriage? Hera. She defeats Aphrodite, Ares, the passions. Remember we talked about that. But the gravest one of the gravest dangers that Aeneas faces is the, the temptations of the sexual act, again and again and again. The Minotaur speaks directly to that, how inhuman, animalistic human can become in the sexual act, the dangers of it. We saw that in Circe's Island. What did she do to all the men? Turned them into animals, pigs. So the sexual act is dangerous for us, extremely dangerous. And everywhere, what delays him from his quest? His year with Dido. Mercury comes to him and he puts his hair on edge. So Virgil's not playing around with this. I mean, he's far more explicit about it than Homer ever was, even though it's there in Homer. Uh, so I, I wrote these notes, and on page 9 you'll see that, that I, I think... I, I don't want to go into this, um, but those of you who take the, the unconscious seriously, I think the labyrinth is one of the earliest metaphors for the unconscious. Mm. That we enter into a labyrinthine world, it's so, it's so hard to get out of, for anybody who takes that seriously. If we don't know the unconscious, how in the world do we get free of it? It's got a hold of it. I mean, that's one of Freud's theories. I'm, the poets knew it long before Freud. But if the, if the labyrinth is an image of the unconscious, and I think it is of our conscious life, then what Virgil's looking at in that story of Daedalus is important for everything that Aeneas will go on to do and everything that he as a poet will go on to do. Because if Rome is going to be founded, both of them are going to have to deal with these things far more than anybody else has before them. So I can't say enough about it, but we don't have the time to go in it. So I've given this to you. Um, for those, who, I hope you'll all read it because it's. I think you'll find it interesting. Just very quickly, Troy was destroyed. When the book opens, Aeneas is blown off course and he comes to Carthage. When he comes to Carthage, his mother greets him in the form of a girl. Remember, and she tells him the story of Dido that she was from Tyre, and by the way, Tyre is one of the great centers of the commercial world and the killing of babies, infants, I mean, on a scale like modern America with um, abortions, mm -hmm. it was just infanticide. I mean, they, 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 killed, they killed children, um, um, sacrificed them in their forms of worship, so the horror stories behind Tyre are really something, but Dido comes from that, 
she loves her husband, Zacchaeus, deeply, and her brother, Pygmalion, kills him for greed. For greed. And she, and she has to flee. And she makes a vow to never betray her marriage vows. She comes to Carthage to form a new city. So at the very outset of the book, we've encountered three cities. Destroyed by greed, Virgil's critique of it, and, and being too credulous of the Greeks, the Trojans were, the Trojans were too presumptuous. They, they were too pious. They acted like they were very righteous, but they did everything they were supposed to do for the gods. I mean, we all, I think we all know that sin. When in fact they were doing it for themselves, and they lose it all. Their life is destroyed. Comes to Carthage, what will happen to Carthage when he leaves? Destroyed. She despairs. Think about the contrast between Dido and um, Crusa. When he leaves, she, she takes her life. She, and what makes her do it? She's embarrassed at the thought that all the men who came to woo her will make fun of her because she's been abandoned. How much feminine pride in that? The despair that overtakes her. Destroy. I always, I also got from that that she also felt guilty for forsaking her first marriage. Where do you see that? I mean, that's interesting. Did you, I mean, can you point to a line or just your sense? Well, no, I kind of, I thought I had read that kind of in one of the lines there. I mean, that was my interpretation of it. She does. I, so she, can you have the line? I, I know the line. I'd have to go back and read it. <laughs> Find that it. That area, but yeah, I don't know it before. It's on her mind. The one that stands out for me is that. I got that too. That she's going to, but, but I'm good. So that's there. The guilt. For, for not keeping her word. Right. Yeah. Destroyed, destroyed, destroyed. So even before we get this, the story of the cities that he's going to attempt to found, we already have these experiences of cities in decline. There's something wrong with them. There are these disorders. They line up with the cities in the Odyssey. Remember that in the opening of the Odyssey, we looked at Pylos and Sparta and Ithaca itself. So Virgil's carrying that theme forward. Um, but on a massive scale, because the focus in the Odyssey, remember, was the family, marriage. The focus here is something larger, more Catholic. He, he's concerned with something larger than the family, that a, that a people have to come together, um, that there's something in our nature that, that, um, that should draw us together, and cities are not doing that. They're destroyed because they give in to greed. Just out of curiosity, yeah. what was the durability of those uh, the length of, let's say, their existence. Historically? Historically in those Oh, God, those I don't know. Tyre still exists. Tyre's been renamed. Carthage yeah, is still. Carthage, I know, still yeah. exists, but I mean, it yeah. basically is. Yeah, and by the way, um, for those of you who know St. Augustine's the Confessions, to Carthage I came burning. Eliot quotes those lines in the, in the Wasteland. To Carthage I came burning. Why did you go to Carthage? Lusting. I mean, uh, Augustine, remember those lines in Augustine, because he was so overcome with his lust. Uh, yes, God, yes, God, but not yet. Um. Not yet. And the <laughs> overcoming the lusts were so great, but he was so he, He's one of the first great saints who, who struggled tremendously with that. So <coughs> yes? I have a question for you about the geography involved. I know that Carthage is on the northern coast of Africa, and that Tyre is 
current Lebanon. Right. Uh, but now Troy, which was discovered by the Archaeology Shrine. Yes. Seven levels down. Where was Troy? Was Troy in Asia Minor? Troy is. Do you have it? Do you have it? We had it. Um, oh, good. Can you take it out? Yeah. Just for a second. This is good. Can just show you? Troy is right up here. Yes. Oh, you've got it? Yeah, here. Right there. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Tyre and Sidon were two twin cities in Lebanon? Because that's mentioned in the Bible. Say? Tyre and Sidon. S-I-D-O-N? Uh, I don't know. They're hard to remember. Yeah. 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 Ye
a slender copy of our massive tower, a dry brooklet, brooklet named Xanthus. It's an exact duplicate of Troy in miniature. The brooklet, the river, is dry. It's, it's sterile. It's sterile. It's dying. Um, they recall, this, is, this lines up with all those episodes in the Odyssey when people were living in the past in their wounds. Here's a couple who had to, were forced to leave Troy, who attempt to found a city, and they model it on the past, which means what? They're stuck in the past. All they can do, that's their life, it defines them. They, that's all they can recall. The riverbed is dry. It, in Eliot's terms, it's the, the modern, the wasteland, for those of you who read, the modern city, the wasteland, the sterile city. Um, El Hellenus, um, on page 81, prophecies and tells him what to look for and what to look out for. Um, on page 81, and then um, on page 83, I said farewell and tears came as I spoke. Be happy, friends. Your fortune is achieved while one face beckons us and another. Here's your quiet rest. No seed to plow, no quest for dim lands of Asunia. Receding over, here before your eyes are replicas of Xanthus and of Troy, your own hands built. One of the things virtual should, they will be happy there. You know, like Menelaus and, we talked about this, Menelaus and Helen and <coughs> Nestor and his wife and they're not Ithaca, they're not Odysseus and Penelope, but they're in a marriage and it's, I mean it's, Homer's critiquing it, but they're married and they're there. It, it, this is that kind of marriage. They will live there, they will live there peaceably. But I think what Homer's showing us is, the critique of it is, you cannot duplicate the past because if you do you'll die. You'll dry up. But here, an interesting comment about Rome. Here before your eyes are replicas of Xanthus. Better auspices, I pray, and less a challenge to the Greeks. If one day I shall enter Tiber stream and Tiber fields and see the walls my people have in store for them, then of those kindred cities, neighboring nations, and Epirus and Hesperia, both looking back to Dardania's founder, both to one sad history, we shall make a single Troy in spirit May this task await our heirs. Rome will assimilate all of these cities. Whatever Rome will become, it will be the product of all that he's learned from these experiences of these cities. So remember from that passage in the, in the Iliad, we saw that the light of darkness will never die out. So that we remember last week, um, Rome is the eternal city. It's its nature. It is not like these other cities. Um, it will never die out. It's the eternal city. And over and over and over again, we see at the end of these, at the end of his descriptions of trying to found a city, the last descriptions are of Aeneas leaving that Greek world behind. That that's of his past. Whatever Rome will be, it will not be racially um, exclusive. It will, it will be the product of assimilating all these peoples. It will be the universal city. Um, we have to stop. Let me just, um, two things. I'm, I'm only going to look at them briefly next time because I want to look at that scene where um, Mercury comes to Aeneas. It's just, it's an important one. We, we're not going to have time. And then I want to look at the end of book four when Virgil describes Carthage going up in flames. 
because I think that's a foreshadowing of what will happen to Carthage in the, in the Punic Wars. So it's, it's Virgil showing us what's wrong with, again, Carthage and what will have to be if Rome is to become the city that it seems destined to be. Okay. Let's stop here. So next, next week I'll touch, I'll come back to the cities again just for a few minutes and I want to look at the Diocene because we didn't, I didn't give it the time that I wanted to tonight. But we'll go on and I'll look briefly at the underworld but I'm, um, I've given you those notes because um, we're just not going to have time to spend them. I think you'll find the, the notes interesting. You all have a good week. And I hope those of you yes, who joined us tonight will come again. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yes, yes. Douglas, that's Well, yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely not. Besides the interpretation, I always said that doing a interpretation here. Right.